Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 130, If You Give Edwin an Inch. Now, I failed to mention in the last episode that Sutton Hoo and Edith Pretty's house are available to be visited by the public. And best of all, they're maintained by the National Trust, meaning that if you're a member of the National Trust or the National Trust of Scotland, you can visit it for free. So if you're in the area, consider checking them out. And while I'm making announcements, members, make sure you update your feeds or just check in with your iOS apps because a new episode is live and it's all about King Arthur and whether or not he really existed. We've already covered it a little bit, but we get really deep into the weeds on this stuff and it's fascinating material. So I think you'll like it. Okay, let's talk about history. And there's going to be a lot of moving pieces in this one, so buckle up. And I know that some of you listen to this show in bed, but this episode is packed with events, so make sure that you're awake for it. In fact, hold on, I've got a sound effect for this. There you go. Up and at em. And also, you might want to listen to this episode a couple times, since things are going to be happening fast and furious. So with that out of the way, let's get going. Alright, so when we last left Edwin, he was installed as King of Northumbria by King Raedwald, Bretwalda. And he had wielded his newly granted power to exact revenge upon King Cheritich of Elmet, probably in response to the British king poisoning Edwin's nephew, Hereric. But for as powerful as Edwin was in the north, Raedwald was the true power in Britain. He was referred to as Rex Angelorum by Bede, King of the Angles. And he was certainly that. But unfortunately, the Battle at the River Idol is the last entry we have about Raidwald. He just vanishes. So let's hit pause on him for a minute and look south to Raidwald's neighbors in Essex. Do you remember King Sabert's three sons? They were the pagan kings who ruled Essex following Sabert's death. As you might remember, they controlled both Essex as well as London, and it looks like they were rather ambitious. So in 617, only a year after the Battle at the River Idol, the warbands of the East Saxons clashed with the West Saxons, quite possibly over Surrey. Now let me say this. Surrey is beautiful. It really is. However, they might have regretted their decision because in that battle, all three fantastically named kings of Essex, King Sexred, King Sayward, and probably King Sexbald, were killed in battle leaving Sayward's son, Sigebert, as the sole king of the East Saxons, and Surrey still under the control of the West Saxons. And even worse, this defeat brought an end to the charming tradition of sex names. Oh well. But after that, things were quiet for a bit. Until there was a wedding. You see, at some point in this period, Edwin married Aethelbert, the daughter of King Aethelbert of Kent, and the sister of the current king of Kent, Aidbald. And that's a pretty good marriage for the new king of Northumbria. Kent was powerful, and by marrying Aethelbert, he was tying himself to Kent, but not just Kent, he was also tying himself in with the Merovingians of Francia. Don't forget that Aethelbert's mother, the former queen of Kent, was Bertha, the daughter of the king of Paris. So through this union, hopefully Edwin's children would have the support of the Franks. That's a pretty smart move. And as incentive for the marriage to take place, Edwin apparently said he would consider converting to Christianity. Now, he didn't say that he would convert. He only said that he would consider it. But hey, 
It's a start. And he'd allow Ethelbert to bring a priest with her, which should remind you of how the conversion of King Ethelbert of Kent started. So the new queen of Northumbria brought an Italian priest by the name of Paulinus with her. And we're told that Paulinus was, quote, a man of tall stature, a little stooping, with black hair and a thin face, a hooked and thin nose, his aspect both venerable and awe-inspiring. Frankly, it sounds a bit like Frollo. But as inspiring as Bede's description of Paulinus might be, I'm pretty sure that some of you are focused on something else. I can bet at least a few of you are saying, Hey, wait a minute. Edwin's getting married again? What about Quenberg, the daughter of King Churl of Mercia? Where did she go? What did she think about Edwin's new marital bliss? I mean, we sort of glossed over Edwin marrying Quenberg several episodes back, but that was no minor event. Seriously, think about what that move meant for Mercia. This marriage took place during the period when Aethelfrith was still hunting Edwin. And that was not a small matter. Aethelfrith was busy killing kings whenever he had the chance. And to make matters worse, Mercia was uncomfortably close to Northumbria. And yet here you had King Churl of Mercia marrying his daughter to Edwin. It makes you wonder if Raidwald was already stretching out his power into the Midlands, and maybe he provided Mercia enough protection that they thought they could risk angering Aethelfrith. Or maybe the Midlands were already becoming powerful in their own right, or something like that. But that being said, even if Mercia was powerful, or even if Raidwald did extend his power over Mercia, it might not have worked. Some scholars have argued that Aethelfrith probably traveled through Elmet, giving Cheritich the heebie-jeebies, and then conquered Mercia on his way down to fight the Battle of Chester in 616. You know, that's the battle where he killed a bunch of monks, some kings, and a bunch of Welshmen. So if they're right, Mercia's gamble in that case failed. And to reinforce that bad luck, Churl later vanishes from the record. So the point here is that Mercia had risked a lot when Quinberg married Edwin. And it quite possibly lost a lot as well. And then Edwin remarried. <laughs> Was this a starter marriage? What the hell? Now, we aren't given any details on what happened to Quinberg, so we don't know if she died or if she was set aside or something else happened. She just vanishes. But I wonder what Osfrith and Aedfrith, who were Edwin and Quinberg's two sons, thought of this whole thing. But anyway, this whole thing must have sucked a bit for Mercia. And for East Anglia, for that matter. After all, Raidwald wasn't exactly pro-Christian, and Edwin owed a lot to Raidwald. Yet here you had Edwin marrying a princess from Kent rather than East Anglia, and a Christian one on top of it. And he was accepting the priest, Paulinus, into his kingdom. It must have been a slap in the face for Raidwald. And maybe this is an indication that the power of the great Bretwalda was already waning. And then he died. Now, we don't know when Raidwald died, but it's commonly thought that he died in 624. That's because 624 is the date that 13th century chroniclers, Roger of Wendover and Matthew Paris, date it. And in support of that, it's before the point when Paulinus was appointed as the Bishop of Northumbria, and given Raidwald's stance on Christianity, that almost certainly would have been something that could only have happened after Raidwald was dead. Because, I mean, having a priest living in Northumbria and preaching to the Queen is a very different thing from establishing a diocese in Northumbria. So I'm guessing that would have had to have happened after Raidwald had already passed away. But let's go with Roger and Matthew and say that it all happened in 624. Well, 
That's actually kind of a problem for us, because there are coins found in Mound 1 of Sutton Hoo that are dated to circa 625. So if he died in 624, it's possible that Raidwald wasn't in that mound at all. But whatever the case, Raidwald, Bretwalda, had died. And his son, Erpwald, took over the throne of East Anglia. But notably, he did not take the mantle of Bretwalda. There was another king who was more powerful. A king who had ties to the Merovingians and to Kent. And a king who had ties to Mercia as well. And he was a king who had just kicked the bejesus out of Elmet. Edwin of Northumbria. He would be the new Bretwalda, commanding a vast amount of power over peoples on both sides of the Humber, even more than Raidwald. And consider how powerful Raidwald was. I mean, in addition to his military power, there's a good indication that he was even changing the trading landscape of the region, with Ipswich becoming an important trading town during his reign. And if Mound 1 was Raidwald's burial, and it's not certain that it was, but if it was, it's possible that those objects were offerings from sub-kings who owed Raidwald fealty. But at the very least, he was strong enough to exert power over kings on both sides of the Humber in his own lifetime. That's enormous. And then it all collapsed with his death. And it went to Edwin. And that's kind of sad considering Raidwald's accomplishments and how much he had given Edwin. As well as the fact that it's argued that East Anglia was the first territory settled by independent Anglo-Saxons. So to have such an old house climb so high only to lose it all to someone that they themselves had installed on the throne. Well, that's just a bit heartbreaking. But, honestly, Raidwald was a bit of an anomaly for the kingdom, and his rise to power was probably entirely due to his own personal qualities overcoming the area's natural disadvantages. The thing is that East Anglia was a bit of a backwater region during that time. They weren't uniting their lines with the Franks, they weren't creating written laws, and they were holding on to their religion much more staunchly than their Kentish neighbors. And part of this cultural divide, as well as their difficulty with becoming a force to be reckoned with, might have had to do with East Anglia's odd position on the island. They were given a bit of a rough hand. To the south were the East Saxons, who, despite their recent defeat with the West Saxons, were still a very impressive force, both militarily and financially. Don't forget that they still controlled London, after all. So, going south was probably a no-go. And then, on the other side, the East Anglians had the Fens. And those vast marshes probably made expansion of the territory rather difficult. Which could be why the region wouldn't become dominant again. But at least it also made it very difficult to invade. Even the most powerful of the Mercian kings failed at their 8th and 9th century conquests. So basically, East Anglia was just sort of boxed in and isolated. And they weren't even all that influential with their neighbors when it came to culture and styles. I mean, the difference between the Scandinavian-influenced East Anglians and the nearby Frankish-influenced people of Kent is rather interesting. And what we end up seeing is the growing popularity with Frankish, Kentish, and Southern styles of names and accessories, rather than Scandinavian ones. And actually, the fact that Edwin tied his line to the Franks and to Kent rather than to East Anglia and Scandinavia could reflect the waning power of the isolated kingdom that was once so prominent. Hell, even the East Anglians looked like they might have been abandoning their Scandinavian ties, with Raidwald's own son, or stepson depending on who you're talking to, a man by the name of Sigebert, 
And this was a different Sigebert than the one ruling Essex. Well, anyway, even he had a Frankish name. So things in East Anglia were on a downswing. But there still was room for infighting. You didn't think this could end peacefully, did you? So when Raidwald died, there wasn't just Erpwald who wanted to rule. Sigebert was also interested in the job. Now this looks like it was partially just good old-fashioned dynastic infighting between half-brothers, but it also looks like it might have had a religious element as well. Both brothers were pagan when Raidwald died, but it's possible that one of the brothers was more open to Christianity than the other, which could have led to increased conflict. We can surmise that because Erpwald took a bride from Kent as his wife, rather than an Anglian noblewoman. And as you know, Kent had converted to Christianity, and was still quite powerful in the region. So on the one hand, this marriage might have strengthened his position against his brother, bringing Kent to his side. But on the other hand, it probably didn't make him any friends amongst the pagans in his kingdom. But whatever the case, it looks like there was quite a struggle that took place, and it ended with Sigebert being driven into exile. And into Francia. See what I mean about this Frankish turn? And honestly, this trend was probably well underway before Erpwald and Sigebert got into it. According to Harrison, Raidwald was, quote, almost certainly in contact with the Merovingians, end quote. And support for this is found in the Frankish coins that were in Mound 1 of Sun Hu, as well as Sigebert's Frankish name. Now, sometime around here, Edwin seems to have been trying to keep his ties with East Anglia, despite the fact that he didn't want to marry into East Anglia. And he did that by marrying Harriswith, the daughter of his murdered nephew, Hereric, to Raidwald's nephew, Aethelric. And actually, spoiler alert, Aethelric would later become king of the East Anglians. But anyway, that being said, it's pretty clear who was in charge and who was calling the shots. Edwin. And not only that, but it looks like he wasn't content to simply rule his own kingdom. He really wanted to behave like a Bretwalda. The reality is that it couldn't have been missed that Edwin was the most powerful king in England. Raidwald's body was probably still warm, and Edwin was already working on forming the largest confederacy of kingdoms thus far in the region's history. And confederacy is the right term for it, because it certainly wasn't an empire, or something like the area had seen under Roman times. Edwin was forming a coalition of individuals, all of whom gave him fealty, rather than a true uniting of nation-states. He was, in essence, the model of a king during the heroic age of England. Everything hinged on his own person, and as we will see, his thanes were fiercely devoted to him. And in furtherance of his goal of expanding his power base, Edwin had conquered Elmet, he was extending control over the kingdom of Lindsay, he had become Bretwalda, and he was pretty clearly wielding a lot of influence over the East Anglians. And a great deal of what this new king was doing reinforced his aura of power, Bede tells us that on long journeys, Edwin would have a standard bearer ride ahead of him with a tufa, which was a Roman accessory. The symbolism couldn't have been missed. And his connection with the rest of the world didn't stop there. As we already discussed, he was married to Aethelbert, the daughter of King Aethelbert of Kent and Queen Bertha of Paris, thus uniting his line with the Merovingians. And while the Kingdom of Kent was still powerful and did not seem eager to accept Northumbrian domination, that marriage still placed him in a powerful position by taking a potential rival, King Eadbald of Kent, don't forget that King Eadbald's father 
was a Bretwalda, and making him an ally through marriage to his sister, and making him an ally through marriage. And the son of the other Bretwalda, Erbwald, was pretty clearly a subject king. So Edwin was making serious headway here, and he soon dominated the Mercians north of the River Trent, and probably, later on, the Mercians to the south as well. This was a powerful northern king, even more powerful than Aethelfrith. And for that matter, his new wife and her priest Paulinus were no wallflowers either. A year later, in 625, Bishop Justus consecrated Paulinus as the Bishop of Northumbria. Northumbria now had its own bishop. And you might remember that having two sees in Britain had been the plan ever since Pope Gregory the Great and St. Augustine got involved. And now, despite the massive setbacks that Christianity had experienced in the region, it was starting to move in that direction. Sure, it wasn't great. In fact, Britain was still a bit of a failure for the church. The East Angles were pagan, the Mercians were pagan, the Northumbrians were pagan, the East and West Saxons were pagan, only Kent had a Christian king. So yeah, it wasn't looking good. But at least things were improving. And more importantly, this expansion of the church within Northumbria was within Edwin's goals. He wasn't a Christian, sure, but he had agreed to look into it and consider it. And could you imagine this king agreeing to be subject to a sea based in Kent? <laughs> Hardly. But if he had a separate northern province for the Anglo-Saxon church, well, that might not be too bad. So anyway, the church was growing in power in the north. And that might not have been appreciated by all the other Anglo-Saxon kings. And actually, Edwin's rapid success was probably giving more than a few of his fellow kings a bit of indigestion. And one king, in particular, had enough. Sometime in 625 or 626, Quichelm, the king of the West Saxons, or perhaps more accurately stated, the king of the Upper Thames Valley, appears to have been getting rather frustrated by Northumbrian domination of the East Angles and the Midlands. And it's quite possible that Edwin started to look rather hungrily at the Upper Thames Valley, and that was just the last straw for Quichelm. Something would have to be done about this northern king. He was clearly a powerful war leader who commanded a great number of sub-kings and werons, so a direct conflict would probably end in disaster. So Quichelm took a more subtle approach and a man named Eomer was dispatched. Not to be confused with Eomer from Lord of the Rings. Anyway, Bede tells us that on the first day of Easter, which I suspect is literary flourish due to the fact that Edwin was pagan, so why would he care if it was Easter or not? But anyway, on Easter, Eomer supposedly arrived at Edwin's court, who were at the River Derwent at the time, and he claimed to have a message for the king. Now, the king was quite busy, and probably rather distracted. Why? Well, Queen Aethelbert was giving birth to their child. But Edwin granted this messenger an audience, maybe was hoping to kill some time and calm his nerves as he awaited news for his wife and child. I don't know. And Eomer approached the king and his men with all the appropriate deference. And as he got close, he reached into his clothing and suddenly lunged at Edwin with a double-edged poisoned dagger. Leela, who was one of Edwin's thanes, leapt into action. He didn't have a shield on hand, nor was he armed, so all he could do was protect Edwin with his own body and take the blow for his king. Moments later, the brave thane fell to the ground, mortally wounded. 
Chaos immediately erupted in the court. Swords flashed, and although Edwin was wounded in the ensuing melee, the assassin was struck down. But not before he killed Forth Hera, another of Edwin's loyal companions. Some distance away, Ainflaid was born. All in all, it had been quite an eventful day. And it was clear that so long as Quichhelm was alive, neither Edwin nor Ainflade nor his family would ever be safe. This could not go unanswered. But first, he had a daughter to mate. And upon holding young Ainflade in his arms, Edwin gave thanks to the gods. Now Bishop Paulinus was on hand, and he tried to convince the king that it was Christ who he should be thanking, and that it was actually the bishop's prayers that allowed the little girl to be born safely. I love the stones on Paulinus. Edwin had just narrowly escaped death, was still wounded, probably was still covered in the blood of Lila, Forth Hera, and Eomer, and nevertheless, the bishop decided to argue theology and basically claim credit for the birth. He must have had ice water running through his veins. And maybe it was the sheer confidence that this bishop had, or maybe Edwin was tired of arguing and delaying the conversion, or maybe he was simply outraged at the attempt on his life and he wanted to bring everything he had to bear on Wessex, even this Christian god. But whatever the reason, Edwin said that if Christ would give him victory over those who tried to assassinate him, he would convert. And then, to prove he meant what he said, he allowed Paulinus to baptize Ainflade and 12 other members of their family, and were told that she was the first Northumbrian to be baptized. Now, the biblical nature of this story cannot be ignored, especially considering that Ainflade would later become a rather famous abbess. So to have her be born on Easter, be the first Northumbrian convert, and also have 12 family members follow her, much like the apostles, well, it's all a bit suspect. But that's the story we're told. And then we're told that Edwin recovered from his wound, mustered his warbands, and marched upon the West Saxons. There he either subdued or slew any who he was told had conspired against him. Again, you get a sense of how ruthless this king was. Bede, who was quite friendly to the Northumbrian rulers, says that he took down anyone who he, quote, had been informed had conspired to murder him, end quote. So basically, anytime anyone pointed a finger. Sounds like quite the witch hunt, doesn't it? So, Quichhelm and the others were crushed, and Edwin had received the victory he had demanded. Well, I guess it's time for him to convert, as promised. Paulinus finally would have his prize. Well, not so fast. First, Edwin decided that he needed to consult his council and see what they thought about this whole Christian thing. Then he would also need to go and take some time and deliberate it alone. And only then would he make a decision. You can almost imagine Bishop Paulinus exasperatedly throwing his hands up and saying, Oh, come on! But that's what Edwin did. And next time, we'll talk about the conversion of Edwin. Okay, bedtime listeners, now you can go to sleep. And I'll even give you the sounds of waterfalls. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. Or you can join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums. And we'll see you over there. 
Good night.